Good morning to you all. I guess it's still morning. I had a question posed to me here in the basement before we came up, and I was asked, will I preach in German today? Maybe I should take a vote. <laughs> Some offered that they could interpret for their partners if I would preach in German, but I hadn't planned to. I'd like to wish the grace of Jesus Christ and the love of God to each one of you here today. It's been good to be here with you. It would have been interesting to me and my family to have kind of an introduction at one point in time and get to know a little better who you all are, but it was good just being with you. Sometimes when we're in a place like this, it seems like we're in kind of a foreign territory, and in a sense it is geographically, but spiritually I am thankful that it is not a foreign territory. I'm thankful that this morning we can be here together in the same territory spiritually as brothers and sisters in Christ. I chose to speak on a verse this morning that I came across a while ago already that spoke to me quite powerfully. And this verse is found in Hebrews 10.35. And the morning that I came across this verse was a morning after a night that our children had not slept the best. And I'm sure those of you who are parents know what that means when the children do not sleep well. It means not a good night of sleep for us as well. And sometimes it, it feels to us dads and moms when we get up that morning that a gravel truck had driven across us while we slept and we don't really feel like starting the day. But anyway, in Hebrews 10.35, this is the verse that I came across that morning in that verse it says, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. If we take that verse and look at the context where it was written in Hebrews, might have been Paul that wrote it, we're not quite sure. But what seemed to be taking place here in the, the church that was largely made up of Hebrews in this setting here, was that the author of the book of Hebrews had had seen something happening that he was concerned about. He had seen these Christians here who had previously committed themselves faithfully to walk with the Lord. They had become Christians, had turned away from the Jewish law, and had begun to live for Christ. He saw some of them that were having second thoughts about the commitment they had made. Is this really worth it? I'm going to read a few more verses just before verse 35 there, starting in verse 32, which gives us a broader picture of the setting here. And this was a, the writer writing to these Hebrew Christians here. He was just telling them, but recall, or in other words, remember the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Then verse 35, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. So the writer was reminding these Christians here that Look back in your life and remember the commitment you made when you came to Christ and remember that, yes, you did go through a lot of suffering and 
you suffered reproach and you were made a spectacle, which to me that means people had mocked them for becoming Christians, but he was just telling them, despite all this, don't cast away what you have received through Christ. Don't cast away this confidence. It helped me to understand a little more what this phrase, cast away, is really trying to point out. The other place in the New Testament where I found this term, cast away, is in Mark 10. I'll read the short portion there where it's found in Mark 10, starting in verse 46. And they came to Jericho, this was Jesus and his disciples, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he should hold his peace. But he cried the more a great deal. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. In this sense here, the casting away, which if you would look this up in the Greek, it would be the same term as used in Hebrews 10.35. This one here is used in a positive sense. This casting away was a good thing. This blind man who desired to see, when he heard that Jesus was there, all of a sudden he discovered, well, I'm kind of bound up here in all these garments that I have on, the robe that's outside around me, my outer garment. I have to get to Jesus. So he just simply took his outer garment and he cast it away and made his way to Jesus so he could be healed. That's the casting away that was used in Hebrews. It's an intentional act. We come to the point where we make the decision that I'm tired of this. This burden that I'm facing, this suffering that I'm going through, I'm going to cast it away. In that sense, it's negative. So, in Hebrews 10 here, it also helps us if we look a little bit at what was this confidence that these Christians were being exhorted not to cast away. Back to verse 9 in Hebrews 10. Let's get a picture of this confidence that the writer was pointing out to these Hebrew Christians that don't cast us away. Then he said, this is Jesus, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man... Once again, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness, this boldness could also mean confidence, to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So when we take each one of these indi individual verses here, 
there's a powerful confidence that the writer spelled out here for these Christians. In verses 10 and 14, he tells us that we have been and we are being sanctified through the offering of Jesus Christ. Verse 14 also tells us we have been made perfect. Verse 15 says we have the Holy Spirit with us. Verse 16 says God's ways are in our hearts and minds, a part of who we are. They're not just something we know about, but they're a part of who we are. Verse 17 says that he doesn't remember our sins. Verse 18, we no longer need to do or can do, for that matter, anything to pay for our sins. Verse 19 says we live in the presence of God. Verse 22 tells us our consciences are settled. And also in verse 22, it says our bodies are cleansed to no longer live in sin, but to do good works. So with all that confidence that the writer pointed out to these Christians, why then were they tempted to cast that away? Why would we want to cast something away that is so powerful in our lives? I'm going to share two main reasons at least why I believe that we are tempted to cast away our confidence. One is, goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. You know the story as well as I do about the story of how God created the universe, a perfect universe. And in that breathtakingly perfect universe, he also created the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, he placed Adam and Eve. His intention, his desire, his purpose for Adam and Eve was to live there forever without any suffering, without any pain, without any death. That was God's original plan. We can barely, even vaguely imagine how that was in the Garden of Eden with that perfection, with that life that they experienced. But right on the heels of Genesis 1 and 2 comes the story of Genesis 3. And the more we comprehend the magnificence of Genesis 1 and 2, the more horrific becomes the story of Genesis 3, of what Adam and Eve actually, we could say, cast away. We start thinking about that. God gave them dominion. God gave them authority over all of his creation. Why in the world did they want to cast that away just to be able to take a few bites of fruit and then be in bondage instead of having authority over dominion? Now they were in bondage. Now they were slaves. They were no longer free. Sometimes we're even tempted to think that what was really so terrible about that? What was really so bad about just taking a few bites from this tree? God, after all, had placed this tree in the middle of the garden. What was so terrible about it? And we start thinking, it was kind of like maybe those of you children who go to school might think, well, this was probably a little bit like sometimes we're tempted to just cheat on our spelling tests. I'm just going to look back at my answer key here and just to make sure that I have all my answers right in my spelling test. Or maybe it's like playing a game of chess and while my opponent is looking the other way, I'm going to move my rook over here and he's never going to know the difference. We might start thinking that the fall where Adam and Eve took and ate from the fruit of the tree was like that. Cheating in our chess game or in our spelling test is bad enough. But what took place here at the fall was far beyond cheating in a spelling test or cheating in a chess game. When Adam and Eve took from the fruit, disobediently went against what God told them not to do, they handed over their native citizenship, we could call it, and they became traitors. 
In fact, in some places of the world today, in some countries, traitors are still put to death. So Adam and Eve became worthy of death because they signed over their citizenship from the kingdom of God into the kingdom of darkness, and they became traitors to the kingdom of God. In committing that act, they, probably not literally, but they shook their fists as an act of defiance in the face of God and said, we know better than you do what we need and what we don't need. Each one of us could testify. Even though the fall took place thousands of years ago, we could testify that the fall has been brutal, has been cruel, has been violent to all of humanity, to all of mankind. Because of the fall, now we experience weariness. We experience weariness even from doing the things that God intended for us to enjoy doing. We become weary. Doing good things in the kingdom of God, we become weary. The responsibilities that we are given, all of us have different responsibilities, was shared in our Sunday school class this morning how each one of us has been given gifts as we live out those gifts and we live out our responsibilities, whether it might be the responsibility of husband or wife or father or mother or minister or employee or boss, whatever it may be, we become weary and oftentimes very weary. We'll fall into our beds at night and life before us looks like the wall of China because of the weariness that we're experiencing. That came about because of the fall. Before the fall, there was nothing like weariness. Adam and Eve did not know what weariness meant. Because of the fall, now we experience heartache. And we don't just experience heartache, but we experience heartbreak. We face situations in life where close friends, at least those we thought were our close friends, they betray us and they leave us with nothing but dust and ashes. Or we may dream about something that it seems that the Lord is placing into our hearts that he wants us to pursue. And we begin pursuing that and it seems it's working out. It looks like God is blessing us in this dream, this vision that he has given us. And suddenly it seems for no apparent reason, or at least some things we don't understand at the moment, our dreams begin to crumble. They begin to fall apart. And the things that we had thought, this was what God had intended for my life, no longer exist. And we wonder, which is reality? What has the last word in our lives here? Dreams, purpose, vision, or is the harsh reality of the fall, does that get to have the last word? Because of the fall, we experience aging. I'm not old yet, but I am still growing older. And as we grow older, we begin experiencing pains, irritations in muscles that we didn't even know we had. We didn't even know those muscles exist. And hair that was once radiantly black or radiantly dark brown or radiantly blonde or radiantly auburn begins to show streaks of gray.
Another thing that comes with that aging is the temptation, and this often goes hand in hand with the heartaches, the heartbreaks we experience as we grow older. We're tempted to become cynical. We're tempted to just give in to resignation. I guess I'm 46 years old already. Look right. I'm at in life. I haven't been able to really accomplish anything yet. We just resign ourselves to what we call fate. And we're tempted to just throw in the towel and cast it all away and say, it's not worth it. It's not worth going on. We just become cynical about everything else that turns up in life. And of course, because of the fall, we also face death. I think it would be safe to say that every one of us in this room have, in some form or another, seen or experienced, whether friends or family, those close to us, who it seemed that the cold, merciless hand of death reached out and stole him away. Maybe it was through an accident. Maybe it was because of cancer. Or, in some awful cases, maybe it was because this person cast his confidence away, threw in the towel, and took his own life. But in some form or another, all of us have either seen or experienced that cold hand of death reaching in and taking someone we thought we still needed. And as we grow older, even though a lot of us still consider ourselves young, the older we grow, I find it that way in my own life, the more we become aware that death is not only just for everybody else. Death is something that, unless of course the Lord Jesus Christ returns before that time, I personally will need to reckon with death. <coughs> and so, those are only a few things we face because of the fall. But because of those things, because of this weariness, and because of this aging, and because of these heartaches we experience, and because of death, these atrocious effects that the fall has on us. Sometimes we're just simply te tempted to cast this confidence away. It's just not worth going on. Let's grab some pleasures while the getting is good, while we can get them. Isn't that why we're tempted to turn away and walk into the world? Because of the effects of the fall, we feel that we've been robbed of something and we're trying to grab something that we think is out there it's not there, but because of the fall, we're tempted to do that and just cast all this other confidence, this faith away. If the fall wouldn't be enough for us to cause us to be tempted to cast our confidence away, there is also the fight. We live in enemy territory. Paul wrote in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. In this verse here, the word wrestle is taken from the Greek word pale. And when Paul's readers back in that day read this word pale, their mind instantly went to the palastra, where in most Greek cities in that day, they had these great big palastras, they call them, or colosseums were, they got together to watch, of all things, fights, wrestling matches. And we might think that in boxing, some of us know a little bit about the sport of boxing, we might think that 
That's violent. It's a violent sport. It is. But it has nothing in comparison to the violence of the fights that they had in the, their palastras back in the day of, of Paul. In these fights, the competition didn't have a certain amount of rounds. It just went on and on and on until either one of the fighters gave up or surrendered or died. Most of the times, they would not surrender. That was a shame to surrender. They'd fight to the death. And it wasn't just boxing with boxing gloves. They'd put on helmets, first of all, and then they'd have these gloves that were heavy, made out of steel. They would have blades on them, sometimes serrated blades. And with those blades, they would be able to... The rules were... They hardly had any rules. You could gouge, you could tear, you could kick, you could do anything in those fights just to make sure that you could come out on top of your opponent, that you could kill him before he killed you. So when Paul's readers read this verse, that's what their mind went to. And to them, when they read about the fight that we are a part of, the message they got was, we are in a fight of life or death. Sometimes we underestimate. We'd like to look the other way. We'd like to have an easy life. Who wants to fight? But the truth is that the moment that we turned our lives over, we surrendered to Jesus Christ, we didn't get to sign a paper that says we could be a conscientious objector. We became a soldier. And if that isn't enough to convince us, just to study the word wrestle there, if we look up some of those other words in those verses, we see that principalities comes from the word arches, which means chief, those who hold the highest and loftiest position of rank and authority. Powers comes from exousia, which means delegated authority. What Paul was trying to say is that you as Christians... You as followers of Jesus Christ, you are facing an army of evil that is not just a haphazard army. You are facing an army of evil that is maliciously planned and delegated in order to attack you at your weakest points to malign and destroy you as much as possible. So, with the fall, all the effects of the fall that came into our lives, and because of the fight that we are a part of. And it seems to me, at least, that we would think that it should be this way, that the older we become and the more mature we become, that surely the fight becomes less, and we can at least rest a little bit. I have not found it that way in my life. It seems that the more dedication a person becomes serious about giving to the kingdom of God, and the more responsibilities that God asks of a person, the fight becomes stronger. It becomes more subtle, and it becomes more deadly. And with that comes the temptation. Is this really worth it? I have all these effects of the fall. And besides that, I constantly have to be on my guard. I constantly have to be at war. I'm battling to stay alive. Is it really worth it? And we're tempted to cast away our confidence. Those are two reasons why we are tempted to give in to casting away our confidence. I want to give us also two reasons or two ways that I believe that give us the strength and the ability to not cast away our confidence. And instead do like Hebrews 6 tells us, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast, in which enters the presence behind the veil. And this laying hold of, once again, if we study the original context and the original word, does not mean 
just kind of reaching out with a puny little grip and taking hold of this hope. It means laying hold with both hands desperately to seize it with everything that's within us. One way in which we seize this hope with both hands is to live with assurance. Not just with assurance what we will have in the future, but with the assurance of what God has given us and made us to be right now, even in this world, in the midst of what we experience of the fall and what we experience of the fight. I won't be able to touch but just a few things, a few of the rich details that we are given in the book of Ephesians of what God has made us to be and of what he has given us when we became followers of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3, this was a prayer that Paul had made for the Christians there, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. I know we say this often, God is love. We say it often, we say it to our children, God loves us. But we have to make sure that this never becomes old to us. This has to remain fresh in our lives that we are loved. Oh, I know we don't always feel loved. We don't always feel lovable. But the truth remains that we are loved by someone who the Bible doesn't just say God loves us. In other words, as it's an action that he does sometimes. In other words, he does, doesn't do it. It says God is love. We are loved by someone that just simply is love. The author of love. If we're not feeling loved, it's just simply because our eyes, our ears, our hearts of faith are stopped. They're clogged by unbelief and by pride. And we're just not able to receive that love. So it's extremely important that we always cling to that truth that we are loved. The assurance that we are loved no matter what. We are forgiven. This is another truth. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. When we're forgiven, here again, this can become something that if we're not careful, it just becomes something that we say. But we really forgot what it means to us to be forgiven. Forgiven means that we are justified. It means that no sin, not one, just as Romans 8 tells us, there is therefore now no condemnation, zero against us. Sometimes it's hard for us to believe that, that I am justified. All those sins that I've committed already, all the times that I still fall, and the weaknesses that come out in my life, how can I be justified? Let's remember that this justification, this forgiveness, is never based on what I do or what I don't do, or who I am or who I am not, but it's based on what Christ did for us. You know what the Bible tells us in Colossians? It tells us that Christ took the it's different in some versions, but the ordinances or the requirements that were written against us, and when I think of that, I think of a report card. Report cards at school, you know how the teachers in our school, every six weeks, they'll write out a report card so the children can bring it home and the parents can look at it. Well, where are children at? How are they doing in school? We also have a report card in life. And if we're really honest with ourselves about how our report card looks, it doesn't look nice at all. 
There is never an A plus in that report card. There is never even an A minus. That report card of our life is completely filled with red X's and all filled with F's. That's how ugly our report card of life looks. Of course, when we're living it on our own. But Colossians says that Jesus Christ took that report card and he nailed it to the cross and he took it out of the way. Now that report card is no longer there. So when we're talking about forgiveness, when we're talking about justification, we're talking about Jesus not only taking away our ugly, rotten report card, but replacing it with his report card. That's justification. One other thing that we can be assured of, we can live with assurance, is that when we became followers of Jesus Christ, surrendered our lives to him, that now we are the Holy Spirit's dwelling place. Isn't it hard for us to grasp that? Really? The Holy Spirit, the very presence of God, dwells right here within my heart. It's easy for us to think that God used to dwell in the tabernacle. He used to dwell in the temple. Yes, he did. Back in the Old Testament, he didn't live in people's hearts. He lived in the temple. There was God's presence. But that changed under the new covenant. No longer does God live in buildings. I trust that none of you even once thought that when you were coming to worship services this morning, that when you come into this church house, you're coming to where God lives, that God's presence lives in this church house. No, he doesn't. But nevertheless, when you came this morning, the presence of the Holy Spirit was here. Why? You brought him with you because he lives within our hearts. So even with just those three assurances, those give us a powerful ability to stand against that temptation to cast away our confidence. Here's another one that we need in our lives to be able to withstand that temptation. We live with assurance and we also live with anticipation. When we live with assurance and when we live with anticipation, it gives us the ability to reach out with both hands and to just securely hold onto that confidence. Romans 8, 18 to 23. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will give us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, everything on earth was subjected to God's curse. All creation anticipates the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And even we as Christians, although we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, also groan to be released from pain and suffering. We too wait anxiously for the day when God will give us our full rights as his children, including the new bodies he has promised us. From the different people that I've talked with and the different things that I've read and the different messages that I've heard preached, it seems to me that a lot of us in our may I call it, in a Baptist settings, have drifted quite far away from what the Bible actually teaches us, from what we can anticipate in the coming resurrection of the believers. So many times I've heard this, that it's given me the picture that, oh yes, you know, when we die and when we become resurrected, we will be these unrecognizable, disembodied, Floating around in heaven's spirits. In other words, the resurrection is spiritual, it's not physical. But if we're really honest with ourselves, do any of you look forward to that? Do any of you look forward to being just in a hazy, spiritual place, whatever that is, and 
being an unrecognizable being floating around and do you look forward to going to a place like that? I don't. I don't. When I think about that as being our future, I don't anticipate it. And I think part of the reason why I don't is because we were not created that way. When God created us, when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, he created a body, soul, and spirit. That's who we were made to be. His plan has not changed from day one when he made creation. His plan is still for all of creation to live in perfection, without death, without pain, without any suffering. And that's what if I understand scripture correctly, is what is waiting for us is a restoration. These verses from Romans 8, did you notice that it doesn't say that just we as people are eagerly waiting for that day? It says all of creation is groaning in childbirth for that day that it's anticipating when it can once again be restored to what it was meant to be from the beginning. I look forward to that. That brings an anticipation to my heart that I long to see that day. So let's not miss that impact. And I think often we might get a little bit too theological, we might get too doctrinal, we might become too high sounding with all these things that we try to explain. Jesus often just used simple stories to illustrate truths. So I'd like to just share one short story here about this truth that can bring this anticipation more alive within our hearts. I have not personally read this book, but I've, I've read short excerpts from it. This book is called Kontiki. It's a personal account of a man and some of his friends who decided that they were going to sail across a certain part of the ocean. It was a wild and dangerous trip, and they were going to do it with just a primitive raft. They were going to sail from Peru to Polynesia. 101 days. 4,300 miles, these six men sailed through the ocean. They had this island in mind that to them was going to be paradise. They were looking forward to when they could finally sail their raft there into the island and be in paradise. Well, just before the island was there where they could disembark from their raft, they could see it, but they were not quite there yet. They were just a few hundred yards away. A new sea rose high up astern of us like a glittering green glass wall. As we sank down, it came rolling after us, and in the same second in which I saw it high above me, I felt a violent blow and was submerged under floods of water. I felt the suction through my whole body with such great power that I had to strain every single muscle in my frame and think of one thing only, hold on, hold on. The whole submersion lasted only seconds, but it demanded more endurance than we usually have in our bodies. There is greater strength in the human mechanism than that of the muscles alone. I determined that if I was to die, I would die in this position like a knot on the stake. The sea thundered on over and past, and as it roared by, it revealed a hideous sight. The vessel we knew from weeks and months at sea was no more. In a few seconds, our pleasant world had become a shattered wreck. Doesn't that sound a lot like what we experience with the effects of the fall and the battle that we need to fight when we're here on earth? Days when it seems that we can't do much else except just simply hang on. But thankfully, this was not the end of the story for these men. Just as the fall is not the end of the story for us, and just as the fight is not the end of the story and doesn't get to have the last word, let me share what these men experienced. This is Thor once again. Thor Heyerdahl was the, the author of this book. I shall never forget that wade across the reef toward the heavenly palm island that grew larger as it came to meet us. They discovered that they were close enough that they could walk across. 
When I reached the sunny sand beach, I slipped off my shoes and thrust my bare toes down into the warm, bone-dry sand. It was as though I enjoyed the sight of every footprint which dug itself into the virgin sand beach that led up to the palm trunks. Soon the palm tops closed over my head and I went on, right in toward the center of the tiny island. Green coconuts hung under the palm tufts and some luxuriant bushes were thickly covered with snow-white blossoms, which smelled so sweet that I felt quite faint. In the interior of the island, two quite tame terns flew about my shoulders. They were as white and light as wisps of cloud. I was completely overwhelmed. I sank down on my knees and thrust my fingers deep down into the dry, warm sand. The voyage was over. We were all alive. Doesn't it sound a lot like at least a glimpse, a little example of what we are hoping to someday experience? After all the effects of the fall that we've experienced, after all the weariness of the fight that we experience, we look forward to resting there on this secure and safe island, so to speak. So my encouragement to each one of this morning is let's not follow the route of Hebrews 10.35 where these Christians were tempted to cast away their confidence. Let's do what it tells us. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence. Let's not fall into that temptation to cast away our confidence. But instead of letting the fall, and instead of letting the fight have the last word in our lives, let's truly live out Hebrews 6. Just share those verses one more time in closing. That by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Let's live with the assurance of what God has given us even now, and let's live with anticipation of what is yet coming.